excited that we get to start our new season of Clauses and Controversies, and we're particularly excited to have an old dear friend who is a legend in the sovereign debt world, Antonia Stolper. Antonia has, like a number of our guests, been incredibly generous to us over the years, both in terms of helping us with our research when we have been completely off base. She's never shown frustration, although I'm sure she was with many of our extremely stupid questions, but she's also been extremely generous with our students when they've gone into practice, undoubtedly inadequately prepared by us, but then we have been able to rest easy with the knowledge that they will learn from somebody like Antonia. So it is with the deepest gratitude that uh, I welcome her and Mark welcomes her to our podcast. So welcome, Antonia. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great honor and privilege to be here, and I'm very excited to well, thank uh, you. answer uh, your questions. <laughs> well, we, um, unlike many of our podcasts where we go right into the nitty gritty of the questions we ask, uh, we are hoping uh, this time, because you are a true legend of this field, to ask you a little bit about how you got into the world of sovereign debt. And then, then we'll follow up by sort of maybe, maybe asking you about the arc of the sovereign debt world that you have seen. But I'd love to start with, you know, how, how did you end up in this very weird idiosyncratic field? Um, like much of law practice, it was serendipity. Um, I uh, left college and joined the U.S. Foreign Service and was immediately shipped off to Honduras and then um, sort of in the middle of the developing chaos of uh, 81 and 82 and then came back to Washington as a staff assistant and found myself uh, too close to the um, government, and I decided I couldn't actually serve that government. And so I left and went into politics for a couple of years and finally decided I needed a profession, having found myself living in New York City, uh, because that's where, or actually Westchester, because that's where my um, soon-to-be husband uh was because if you know New Yorkers, they never leave New York. So I had to come to New York and um, went to law school. And when I graduated from law school in 1988, the only sovereign debt, that was the lost uh, decade of the 80s. And yes, there was um, essentially endless restructuring of uh, the lending that had taken place in the 70s. But um, it wasn't very appealing to me. And so uh, I started my career in municipal finance. And since politics is my real passion and I practice law to support it, um, municipal finance was great fun. Um, it's government finance, just like sovereign lending is government finance, um, infrastructure, uh, roads, bridges, subways, um, student loans, uh, dormitory authorities, uh, water, um, and city governments, uh, in particular New York City, New York State, uh, Washington, D.C. I found myself at Sherman and Sterling in 1991 through a series of serendipitous events just at the moment where the uh, Latin American capital markets were opening up through privatization. And that was going on in parallel with the sovereign debt restructuring that was taking place uh, universally in the region. I had grown up in the Caribbean and Latin America, um, spoke fluent Spanish, spoke passable Portuguese. It really was my home. 
Um, and so I started my career at Sherman and Sterling working on the IPOs because I'm a securities lawyer, not really a sovereign debt person. I'm a capital markets lawyer uh, doing the IPOs for Telefonica de Argentina and then Telecom Step, which was the other telephone company in Argentina. These were public offering privatizations and uh, getting deep into uh, what was going on in the country was critical because um, you really couldn't understand what the privatizations were about and where the value was going to be without having a very deep understanding of what was going on in the country. In parallel, and in fact, the Telefonica IPO was done before the Argentina Brady restructuring, which didn't happen until 1992. Um, a team at Sherman and Sterling was working on that, was working on Brazil, was working on Nicaragua, was working on a, a number of the countries um, because we were longtime council to city, and city chaired a number of the bank committees. Remember, in those days, those were bank loans. Um, the famous uh, saying of Walter Riston, I always thought it was a little apocryphal, that countries don't go bankrupt uh, when the petrodollar lending took place in the 70s. As we know, countries do go bankrupt and have a few times. Um, so I was doing the capital market side of that. My first real encounter with myself doing the sovereign debt work was in Peru um, in 1994. Peru had defaulted back in 1984. They were one of the first defaults and then did nothing. And uh, the banks had sued uh, in order to uh, maintain um, their right to sue under the statute of limitations, which under New York law, these are New York law loans for six years. Um, and remember, that's coupon and separately principal. Um, and they would trot down to the uh, courthouse every six months and tell the judge we're still working on it to what's called toll the statute of limitations. So the very first thing I did working with a wonderful partner, Sherman and Sterling and Casey Dwyer, who then retired and had a very untimely death, um, I was in charge of negotiating the tolling arrangements with uh, one of our litigation partners and with the Peruvian team. Uh, they were um, represented at the time uh, in the litigation by a firm in Washington, and uh, that took very many months. Uh, we then moved on into doing the actual negotiation itself. Uh, again, these were bank syndicates. So very different process than what we've seen in the last bunch of rounds with respect to uh, negotiating bank debt. Uh, most Antonia, can, can, can ahead, I Mark. actually... Can I actually ask about that transition? And I'm sorry to, to interrupt them. You can defer my question if, uh, if you like. But I'm, I'm super interested in that transition from the clubby, what I envision not having been involved in it, the kind of clubbier world of you know, a relatively few commercial banks making the loans to the much more dispersed and contentious group of um, of investors that we see with bond lending. And I, I'm wondering, do you think that transition is as significant as it's often made out to be in the sovereign debt literature? I mean, it's made out to be this um, a, a transition when all of a sudden everything became unruly and unmanageable. And I'm wondering if that was if that was your experience of it as a lawyer working through it. Well, so I'll say a couple of things there. Um, it, transformative, um, at some level, apples and oranges, right? Because uh, remember what happens and how we end up actually getting the bank syndicates uh, negotiated. Back in the 80s, the cent right, banks are regulated, right? Now we have hedge funds, uh, mutual funds, all sorts of 
you know, the stress funds, all sorts of players who are much less regulated. The banks, of course, all had capital requirements. And when all these countries started defaulting in the 80s, all of a sudden they were in very big trouble with their regulators. And what did the regulators do? I'm, I'm not sure I know universally, but in the United States, they made them reserve all of that, literally reserve 100% of the loan. Now, they didn't make them do that overnight. They gave them, I think it was a five-year window to do it. But once those loans were fully reserved, then you had two things. One, you had currency. And if you'll remember, for example, Argentina uh, took that debt, uh, those UDIs, as currency in some of the privatizations. Um, and that wasn't unique. So all of a sudden you had currency and anything you got for that was gravy because you were 100% reserved. So you were actually in a position to negotiate a deal. The other aspect, um, which, which I think we'll get to further, is, of course, there were sharing clauses, leaving aside Elliott and the you know Forfait paper, et cetera. There were some... Um, outline pieces of paper, but the major negotiation was being done with these syndicates who had central banks breathing down their necks and sharing clauses, which means anything they got, they had to share, which is not how a bond works, um, at least not how a bond under a fiscal agency agreement works. So, um, and then I'll say something very cynical, which is that there was talk, and I was still a pretty junior associate, but but not, not unaware of kind of the macro picture going on, that, oh, this was great. We would take out this um, these bank syndicates who tended to have to roll over, and sometimes they'd have to kick in new money, et cetera, just to keep the wheels from falling off the bus. Um, I don't know how cooperative the syndicates were. They, these were pretty angry people that you would find in these meetings. Um, but um, that the sort of, in Spanish you say chisme, that the sort of gossip was, oh, this is great. We're going to convert these into bonds. Remember, with the Brady bonds had these uh, had these strips that acted as collateral, um, sort of collectible down the line to juice them up so that uh, the banks would, in fact, take them. And the banks made a bundle on them because, remember, they'd written everything off. And um, the, the sort of chatter was, well, we'll make all this bond debt. And, and bond debts impossible to restructure, to your point, Mark, and therefore countries won't default anymore. And I honestly heard people talk like that. I thought it was ridiculous at the time. It's obviously proved over and over and over again to be ridiculous, in fact. But um, there was something appealing, I guess, in all of this, that in fact bond debt was quite hard to restructure. And so, um, and, and you know, fast forward, right? So the Brady's get done, 90s are go-go years. Of course, the wheels fall off the bus, as we know very, very quickly. We have the, we have the uh, tequila crisis, 94. We have the devaluation of the real in 98, which is the Brazilian currency. Um, the IMF told Argentina at the time, or so I understand, that they couldn't go along with uh, Brazil and devalue, even though their by far largest trading partner was Brazil. So not devaluing in the face of uh, relatively high inflation in Argentina was catastrophic, especially to the real sector um, and their ag sector, which is the only, shall I say, really efficient sector in Argentina and leading to the catastrophic uh, and, and ongoing default starting at the end of 2001 in Argentina. And, and um, in, that, in that default, sorry, there was, I guess I'm going to be like tangent guy where, where mm -hmm. my brain attaches to some uh, one aspect of, of, of what you said that I'm especially curious in. In that, that default, um, there were a lot of curious things, at least from my perspective, that became clear 
uh, or or um, a lot of sort of oddities about bond documentation that became clear that that I think perhaps um, folks hadn't focused on that much. But I was interested in what you said earlier about the link between a sharing clause and the sort of practical consequences of issuing bonds under a trust indenture. And I'm, if I can sort of just take us a little bit further afield, all of the investors I talked to lately, they're kind of apoplectic about trustees. They hate them. <laughs> They're <laughs> slow. They won't do anything. They're, they're tired. So I guess, um, first, I, I, can I get you to explain whether they're, that's a sensible perspective or why not? Is there, investors just don't understand what they're getting into? What's the, what is the deal here? I think that's ridiculous, but, but I'll, 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 I have a couple, I have strong views on this. <laughs> So when we first started doing these bonds, both for corporates as well as for the sovereigns, the model was the old, you know, euro bond market, right? Which was a, a sort of adaptation of old English law bonds, right? So the structure of the euro bond market was the use of fiscal agency agreements it was the use of bearer bonds um it was the use of um of you know fiscal agents represent the uh issuer not the bondholders and um there's no collective action so yes you've got collective action to for example accelerate um, but it's very low thresholds on the old euro bonds. It's 10%, for example, um, on a default. And, and then, uh, you know, pursuant to the papers, each person has a right to sue in their own name. And the result in Argentina, for example, was 1,500 or more lawsuits on the same 1994 fiscal agency agreement, and that didn't even account for the English law lawsuits and the German law and the Italian law. There were there were other not Italian but German law. There were other uh, laws out there as well. And so we, as Sherman and Sterling, I would say, early on started at least saying to our corporate issuers, you know, fiscal agency agreements may look better to you because they may look cheaper, there's less structure, you know, maybe it's, we could do this. Um, but in fact, they have a problem, which is this lack of collective action. Now, under the Trust and Debtor Act, you have the right to sue for overdue um, interest, for example, if the trustee doesn't do anything, but you do not have the right to self-accelerate. Well, it's under the fiscal agency agreements, you did. And so I'm curious if you're saying they don't like the trustees. We certainly recommended to the issuers and, and in fact got the corporates to switch pretty quickly um, that they were better off with a trustee um, that managing that process. We started issuing high yield bonds. And so we really needed a trustee because you needed somebody to manage the reporting, et cetera. As a practical matter, the sovereigns didn't start going down the path of um, indentures until Uruguay, which was the first restructuring done post um, Argentina and I, I was uh, dealer manager counsel to the dealer manager uh, who was advising Uruguay opposite um, Cleary, um, who's, who was the counsel to Uruguay. And that was the first indenture. And that was the Mexico had already gone the path of putting a collective action clause in, but they had not yet gone the path of an indenture. A, a couple of sort of weird uh, securities law issues there. Um, uh, the Trust Indenture Act does not apply to sovereign issuers. So sovereign issuers, as opposed to corporates, could issue registered debt, right? Registered with the SEC and Argentina had registered debt, and Uruguay had a registered debt, and Chile had registered debt, Mexico, et cetera. 
without qualifying the indenture. So they were permitted to actually use fiscal agency agreements, which would never have been permitted for registered debt of corporate issuers um, because they're, um, they are you know, Trust and Debtor Act, TIA exempt. So um, I, I think the other uh, curious thing of the uh, movement into this euro bond structure is that the one thing people didn't pay attention to was this unanimity problem. And I think, you know, unanimity is required by the Trust Indenture Act, the theory being in the corporate world, that if you're going to break that unanimity, it has to be done under the purview of a judge in bankruptcy, in which case you're working with half a number and two thirds in amount. Uh, but, um, and so that, those, those euro bond structures were just, sort of brought into the, the, the sovereign world, New York law, without really thinking about the implication of that unanimity provision. English law trustees, mind you, have never had that provision. I think the standard 75%. And under an English law trustee, the trustee has um, discretion to act in the best interests of all the bondholders. And that's not a... Um, that that kind of um, uh, obviously it doesn't exist at all in a fiscal agency agreement where the fiscal agent is not representing the bondholder at all and and, and doesn't even um, exist. I mean, the trustee is a fiduciary, but really can't act and won't act independent of getting instructions from bondholders. Me too and I had been talking um, when we were we were talking about about this upcoming episode, and we were excited to have you on. And one of the things that was uh, we were especially curious about is your experience in this uh, practice area as a woman. And I imagine starting at a time when there weren't a lot of women in capital markets practices and in sovereign debt practices in particular. And so I, I know, um, you know, we, some of our students were, were excited to learn about, uh, about your, your perspective and your experiences too. And so I, I wonder if you, if you um, can tell us a little bit about that. So um, there still aren't that many senior women in the capital markets practice. Um, I, I go to a, a monthly dinner of sort of the senior securities lawyers on the street. And um, for a long time, it was me. Um, and now I think we're up to three, uh, which is very disappointing. Um, but I, honestly, I never thought about that. Um, one thing about working with the governments is that there tend to be lots of women in the governments. Um, the current uh, uh, Economy Minister of Uruguay, um, Asusena Arosena, is, uh, I, I first met her in the restructuring in 2003 when she was a senior official at the central bank. Um, and uh, so the governments actually have lots of women in them. And, um, and at least when I started as an associate working with the committees, the committees had lots of women. Certainly, city's team under Bill Rhodes, his two or three top senior people were all women. Um, and well, there were like three women and one man. Um, many of the other banks were represented by very senior bank officials. So I never felt like I was the only woman in the room. I would say that we continue to suffer from a deficit of women in the capital markets practice overall. Um, and we continue to suffer from a deficit of women partners overall, certainly in New York. Um, the numbers have inched up a little, but in my 33 years of practice, I would say that, um, and, and if you add my years in the Foreign Service, I would say that um, we are much farther behind than I would have expected. 
But from her personal point of view, it just never bothered me because I am who I am and I did what I did and I knew what I knew. And uh, one of the curious things that I tell people this of working in Latin America is that these are very hierarchical societies. And therefore, if you come in as the person in charge um, and behave like you're in charge and know your stuff, people are not going to openly challenge you and they're going to look to you for advice and they're not going to focus on your uh, being a woman. I also think that as cultures, they like women, they grow up with their sisters and their aunts and their cousins. It's a very family oriented culture in general and social life tends to be, in my view, much more sex integrated than social life often is in the United States. You know, yeah, maybe people go out and play golf, but it's not sort of the thing. Maybe they go to a soccer match, you know, once in a while, but mostly they all show up at grandma's on Sunday for the afternoon to, to have a barbecue and, and see the family. And um, I think that helped too. Um, I make friends pretty easily and uh, met lots of people um, doing uh, the work along the way. And, um, and, and be very, I was very outspoken about it both in the US but also in Latin America. I've been involved for uh, years with the Cyrus R. Vance Center of the New York City Bar Association and we, um, about 10 years ago, launched something called Women in Profession in Latin America. We now have 19 essentially women's bar associations going in Latin America. And uh, I have women lawyer friends everywhere. Um, and we've banded together to uh, promote um, their well being and their advancement in their home countries. And it's helped to mobilize uh, those of us who are interested in Latin America. Um, to um, mobilize ourselves. Um, so um, I think it's, it's a battle that will continue. I'm, I'm, I'm in, 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 in the process of retiring. I'm sorry that we're not farther along. I also think this job is a hard job. And uh, we ask a tremendous amount of lawyers and of uh, in particular partners and um, it's, uh, it's not necessarily that appealing uh, for people who want um, not to be on a plane all the time. I mean, the last two years we haven't been, but um, you know, visiting people and, and continuing to uh, make contacts and discuss with it, people um, is a requirement for, for having a business. So, um, I think there are a lot of reasons why we're farther behind than we should be or where I certainly graduated from college thought we would be. But um, but I've in the process made uh, a vast number of friends in every country, um, including absolutely wonderful women. I think we should probably uh, take a break now. This has been really great. And then we will move to more contemporary matters in the market. So thank you so much. So, Antonia, in the second half of the podcast, we are hoping we can talk about more contemporary matters since this is probably going to be the first podcast that our new set of students in our sovereign debt classes here. And maybe it's best uh, if we begin by talking about what to me is one of the most exciting new deals uh, that has been done. And uh, your team was crucial in getting this deal operationalized. And uh, Mark and I were very excited that a number of our former students got to work on this deal. And the deal I'm talking about is the Belize buyback that just happened. And I'm hoping maybe we can start by just a brief description of the deal and your sense of why this was so exciting. 
or why people are, seem to be excited about it? Assuming, of course, that you are excited about it. Oh, absolutely thrilled. And we were um, tremendously honored to be part of a vast group of lawyers. Um, on hog the limelight on this one um, that helped uh, the various parties get over the, um, the finish line. So the, the basic principle at work here was a debt to nature swap of a very specific kind. So back in the old days, and I want to say the late 80s, maybe early 90s, there were some debt to nature swaps, that, which were Paris Club cancellations in favor of conservation commitments. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll set this land aside kind of thing. This was a much uh, more ambitious plan. So the, the basic structure of the deal um, was uh, there was one bond, we called it the super bond. Um, the bondholders agreed to sell it back to Belize at 55 cents on the dollar. And if more than 75% tender, then the collective action clause could be triggered. Again, we had one bond and essentially could cram down that 55 cents on the dollar for everybody whether or not they voted for it. So that's the whole principle of the CAC, right? It's got a cram down feature. So um, some of that had to be put in trust because not everybody showed up and there had to be a process by which they got validated. But essentially 55 cents was all that they got. And that was the end of the story. Bondholders are now gone. In exchange, uh, the Nature Conservancy lent uh, Belize the money. Um, and, uh, and on a very long-term basis, 19 years, uh, with a denial of justice uh, insurance policy from the Development Finance Corporation, which is the new name of the old OPEC. And, um, and that, that was the loan. That was, known, that was known as the blue loan. Beside that blue loan, was a what we called the conservation funding agreement, which was um, had two components to it. One, a yearly payment coming out of Belize, half in Belizean dollars, half in US dollars, um, that was designed entirely for marine conservation in Belize. And uh, that was sort of administered by the Nature Conservancy, working with stakeholders in Belize, NGOs, the fisheries ministry, the marine biologists, et cetera. TNC has uh, actually the head of their office in Belize is Belizean and she's a marine biologist. It also came with a series of commitments to implement a marine master plan. Uh, Belize has the most important reef in the Caribbean um, under huge threat, as we all know from climate change, but also pollution and uh, overfishing. And this marine plan has milestones. And again, that was being supervised and implemented by the Nature Conservancy. And Belize borrowed some extra money to put it into a trust fund uh, managed by the Nature Conservancy that at the end of the 19 years would be, um, would be uh, essentially a conservation fund in perpetuity to support marine conservation in Belize. Um, so it's part of all of this tremendous negotiations were going on, not, not with us, but between the Nature Conservancy and Belize on the marine master plan on how to implement that, where that money would go, how it would be spent, et cetera. That loan that TNC made was funded by a Credit Suisse conduit where they sold out what they were calling blue bonds. But that was sort of separate, right? So it was um, a securitized loan. That's not an uncommon structure where you put a loan into a conduit and then issue bonds off of that. So that was, a, I mean, I won't say anything was simple here, but a relatively simple structure. And if you 
listened to the bondholders who cashed out. They felt like they got some credibility um, and some ESG cred uh, by agreeing gracefully to sell out at 55 cents um, in order for Belize to be in a position both to have substantial debt relief and uh, as well as uh, make these conservation commitments and make these conservation payments. Antonia, if I may um, continue on the question of sort of why is it that people were so excited? I mean, I don't think I have ever had this many former students come out of the woodwork and email us to say, you know, we worked on the Belize transaction and it's so exciting uh, that they, they usually just want to move to the next transaction. But I guess the, the question that Mark and I have discussed is, given how unusual this transaction was, there was a super bond, there was a buyback where the bondholders got completely cashed out. There was the nature conservancy that funded the whole thing, can, can we expect that this can be reproduced? I mean, I would think, I mean, the reason people are excited about this must be that they think that, you know, the same kind of structure can probably, can perhaps be used in other transactions. We all suspect that Sri Lanka is going to be uh, dealing with restructuring soon. So, but but can this really be reproduced? And I guess the other part of the question is, can we really expect any credible uh, conservation from this? Well, I'll answer the first, second question first. The answer is absolutely. I mean, the one thing I have complete confidence in, both with the Belizean government and the Nature Conservancy's commitment to Belize, is there, this plan is a comprehensive marine plan and uh, with real money behind it, with a whole stakeholder process going on with the communities, with you know, the, the, the um, cruise ship industry, with the oil industry, with the fisher, fishing industry, with folks who live on the coast, um, the, the one, part of this transaction that I have no doubts about is the conservation piece of it, because it really is being implemented by people who are very expert in this, and that's what people's commitment is to it. So that's the easy, I don't want to say it's easy, but that, that part I have no doubt about. The question about replicability, I mean, we're all working on that uh, exact issue. Um, whether it will be exactly replicable, there are some flaws in this particular structure that um, we think need to be tweaked. Um, it's an expensive structure for one. And, um, you know, Belize was sort of out there, the you know, bonds were trading up, you know, the floor, they weren't trading essentially. And so um, you had huge uh, room for debt uh, cancellation here, where, you know, as you know, that notwithstanding you know, significant distress out there in many countries, um, the bond markets have held up incredibly well because uh, interest rates continue to be extremely low. So, Lots of people are calling and discussing what uh, other ways could be done. Uh, this could be done. I think the, um, the NDBs are all very excited about this deal getting done and are looking at it as well. Um, it's like, oh, the DFC got a jump on everybody. Maybe we should uh, join the bandwagon. The more, the merrier. I think other conservation organizations will be looking at it too because one of the things that made the Nature Conservancy uh, so uh, such a powerful partner of Belize in this is they were have been in Belize for 20 years. So they really had a fabulous team that the government had complete confidence in. Um, and that, you know, to your point, whether meaningful conservation will take place, I think 
that's where the meaningful conservation will take place. Um, that being said, there's lots of interest because um, alternative ways of financing conservation um, have to be front and center to uh, the, the climate crisis discussion. So uh, ways in which debt forgiveness can be morphed into effective um, climate adaption adaptation methods is, is obviously critical. Um, and, and I think the view is the more the merrier, but we certainly hope um, we, Sherman and Sterling, um, with our you know, working pro bono with TNC, um, I, I've been out selling the product, literally. I, I've been out fundraising for it. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that, um, you know, with some tweaks to the structure, with some other structures, we, we, we will continue. But, but the hard, this deal took a very long time to do. Antonia, can, there, there were, um, there's two things that I wanted to get you to say a little bit more about in, in connection with the deal. One of which sort of relates to the DFC's role, um, which is, as I understand the transaction really simplistically, the, the Development Finance Corporation, you know, kind of provided a sort of credit enhancement for the new securities and that 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 certainly explains maybe a lot of the the value investors might have seen in the transaction. And I'm wondering whether that aspect of it, this sort of quasi-official sector credit enhancement is how scalable that is um, given the the magnitude of the investments in climate mitigation and adaptation that we need to see. So, this, so that's part one. Before, that was going to be the only part until my ears perked up when you talked about, uh, you might even have said flaws in the structure at one point of the, the current transaction. And so I'm, I'm really interested in what those flaws might be and what changes you would hope to see in, in future, future debt for nature swaps. Oh, Antonia, can I just ask, this, has, this intrigued me very much as well. And it may just be my misunderstanding, but my impression is that the, the fund was not that involved in this particular transaction. And I, I just, I don't understand how that worked. And I've talked to a few investors who emailed me and called me up and said, you know, after um, I had done a blog post uh, cheering on this deal, they, they said, oh, no, Belize actually got a terrible deal. Uh, we didn't give them any extra relief. And I had suggested that they, they did get extra relief. And they said, then, and then they started talking about the fund uh, not doing what they wanted. And I, I really just didn't understand what was going on. And so hopefully this connects to what Mark's question was asking as well, but otherwise ignore my, my intervention. So, so totally different issues. We were not involved in the bondholder negotiations um, at all. Um, they had originally issued a press release saying the fund had to be involved. They weren't going to do it. The original proposal was son of super bond. Uh, it was not a cash tender, but at the end of the day, the debt was bought at 55 cents. So. <laughs> there, there was significant debt relief. Let, let's just put that on the table. The fund had nothing to do with this. Back to the DFC. What the DFC did, Mark, is they did not wrap the bonds that were issued out of the Credit Suisse um, conduit. They wrapped the Nature Conservancy loan. And this is a denial of justice award, which um, is essentially two years process. You have to, there has to be a default. You have to then um, initiate arbitration. Arbitration has to conclude. An award has to be uh, granted. You have to take the award to uh, Belize and um, ask them to pay it. And when they say no, you then put that award to DFC who has the right to pay as um, principal and interest comes due and not in a lump sum, which means that you have to uh, pay for insurance for the life of a loan, which is 19 years, fully amortized. 
And you need a debt service reserve in order for those blue bonds to get the AA rating that they got um, based on uh, US government credit. You needed a two-year debt service reserve. So I don't want to call them flaws, but they are expenses of the structure that, for example, if you had a much more straightforward guarantee would be cheaper, right? Because you wouldn't need these very long um, uh, because because the product is denial of justice, which requires you to go through the life of the arbitration. The bondholders agree to take whatever it is that comes out of that enforcement of that award, but um, the process is very lengthy. So I, not so much flaws. I mean, it is what the product is, but it's an expensive product. Um, when you say cheaper, though, the flip side of that is from the DFC's perspective, would be more expensive, would it not? I mean, one of the things that puzzles well, it's, me about it's this- Absolutely, right? I mean, it's, you know, the DFC wants to always maintain the right to pay as as the debt comes due, um, as opposed to a lump sum payout, right? Which is obviously claim, I mean, immediate claim against the uh, against the U.S. Treasury. So no, 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 under, understood. I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, to me too's, you know, the bondholders grousing, although <laughs> I don't know how, well, I take that with a grain of salt too, right? That's what, that's what, uh, that's what um, distressed investors do, they grouse. So I, I, I don't really take that with a grain of salt, but obviously um, the structure needs to pay uh, the cost of you know, two-year debt service reserve, for example. Um, so, Antonia, uh, um, just in, in, along these lines, uh, what do you envision in terms of other sorts of official sector support for these kinds of deals happening in the future? Do you think the fund and the bank and other similar sorts of institutions could play important roles in supporting these kinds of deals? Well, I don't know about the fund, right? Because it's really not the funds area. But um, I, I, I certainly think that there are many conversations. The fact that Scott Dunn was, um, was a big um, advance. And um, I, I, I am sure that the MDBs are looking at it. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons why marine conservation is on the table here is because it's been somewhat a stepchild of the climate conversation. So um, even though the oceans are a critically important carbon sink. So, um, so uh, I, I have no doubt, um, I, I can't talk about specifics, that um, the MDBs uh, will be, um, you know, thinking uh, ever more creatively about um, solutions like this. And, and I do want to emphasize that, and this is again, where I think the, the bondholders didn't really have any understanding of what was going on between you and me and the four walls um, and the podcast, but but the Nature Conservancy was very important here. And I think other um, conservation organizations, right? Because they work in different countries, not everybody is everywhere. And so um, having um, honest um, conservation uh, infrastructure on the ground, right? Because you know, we're talking about debt relief, we're talking about sovereign debt, but the, the, the reason DFC is there and the reason TNC is there and the reason Belize, you know, sort of went forward with this structure was because of its conservation impact. And so at least with respect to this deal, you cannot, that it, it's a critical piece of the uh, overall uh, success was this uh, very uh, detailed plan um, to, you know, approved by parliament, right? The whole, the loan agreement, the conservation funding agreement, the, the whole thing is in the, on the public record went to 
uh, the Belizean parliament to be voted on unanimously that you know the bondholders may say oh it's not enough debt relief and we could have done better and if we had just rolled over and done son of super bond that the discount of present value of that would have been much lower right it, let, let's posit that right if if that's the trade-off you were making um and the point is well okay but then you got no conservation out of that and you remained enthralled to the bondholders. Now your counterparty is this extremely committed conservation organization that spent 20 years in Belize uh, uh, working on uh, critical conservation matters in Belize and the US government. So um, I, I really think that the bondholder perspective here it isn't, isn't the one I mean, I'm the sell side, not the buy side, just in general. So from my perspective on the sell side, i.e. what's in the best interest of Belize, um, you know, the, the uh, net present value calculation on a raw basis may not be the right way to think about this deal. It, it's the only way the bondholders are ever going to think about it, but it's certainly not the way the Belizean parliament was thinking about it. And, um, and certainly, um, the, uh, so, so you have to go back to conservation is the point here. And, you know, in the bigger conversation about uh, sovereign debt, um, you know, there may be better and simpler ways to get conservation done in many, many countries, especially if the debt's trading above par, and that's not really a reasonable place to think about uh, where you could do this kind of restructuring. I mean, you had this confluence of events in Belize that made this possible. Um, but, but the point was the conservation that you know, if, if all that the bondholders were looking at were the 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 MPV calculations, um, I don't think that's what the Belizean government at the end of the day thought was really the dispositive driving force in getting this deal done. Antonio, we've taken up a ton of your time. I, there's a lot of questions that I would I would like to to ask because I find the the Belize transaction so fascinating, and in particular I find it's so important to figure out whether it's a sign of a, a scalable model that could uh, be replicated around the world, or something that is um, unique to this context or maybe unique to uh, or dependent on some kind of official sector finance. But um, maybe we can reserve those questions for another time. I know, I, I know um, uh, we've taken up a bunch of your time already, but thank you so much for, for joining us. And we will look forward, I hope, to talking about these issues with you uh, on a future episode. Happy to come back. We only got through about half the questions. <laughs> we never talked about Argentina. <laughs> That's for next time. And it, it looks like Argentina will be <laughs> back. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the perennial so problem. Much.